and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Blue and yellow till we die. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sansbury. So, here we are. It, the F-14 in the Big Brother house. No, that was lame last week and I'm not going to make it any well, better. I, so, say, I, thought, I thought mine was bad, but that was that was absolutely yeah, terrible. Yeah, it was it was a shocker. It's not. It's not my. It's not the best one in my repertoire. To be fair. No. Fair. No. So two weeks in, mate. You're still in one piece. Yes. Yes, I I am still in one piece. Excellent. Well, I'm. I am three weeks in because I started a week before you, and uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's uh, people seem to be getting the message. I took the hound out for a spin earlier just to keep his his work ethic up and uh yeah no it was nice there was a bit of me stopping when i hear people approaching and then them taking a nice big wide berth around me so um yeah i'm i am hopeful that the message is getting through well that that's good to see um spin earlier just to keep his work ethic up and uh yeah no it was sorry i'm just doing something there with the but the thing so um okay we we it seems that in the in the in the good old chat room that Scott Peter Harris has joined us could he Scott um so what have we got lined up today then Ian? well we've got a guest so obviously the big news of the week apart from the all consuming news of the week which is covid-19 and and we'll come on to that some more later but obviously the big news was the result of the labor leadership election yesterday where sir Keir Starmer um, romped home with 56 point something um, percent of the vote. Uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey was in second place with about, I think, about 27 and Lisa Nandy uh, in third with 16. So I think it was in the week, it seemed pretty clear that was the way it was going to go. And then I think they, they only needed one round for the leadership, but for the, the deputy leadership, I think it was a lot more candidates in the mix for that one. Um, but I think Angela Rayner still, I think, romped home comfortably. I can't remember the numbers now. Yeah, so on, it went to three rounds um, and Angela Rayner um, was elected on 52.6% with uh, Richard Bergen on 21.3% and Alan Khan, sorry, Rosie, why have they printed it that way around? Rosie, um, Rosina Alan Khan um, on 26.1%. So um, she was... Um, head and shoulders above above her two competitors. So a similar kind of outcome, isn't it, to the uh, to the main event? So mm. interesting that the, the you know a, a balance there, you know, and we'll talk to Cal about this more when he he gets on. But you know, that if you look at the Labour Party as having two distinct wings, which some might argue they don't, but I would argue that they do. Keir Starmer perhaps more of a centrist, um, whereas. Uh, Angela Rayner, perhaps more of the of the Corbyn old guard. So there's something for everyone there. Um, and we asked people, um, we asked I asked Labour members on the Portsmouth Politics Group to, you know, what their thoughts were, and we had an answer back from Scott Jowett. So thank you for uh, for that, Scott. And Scott's view was that he'd spent some time with Corbyn, was obviously a big fan, um, and you know was a little bit worried that Kia perhaps appears to be more of the sort of polished media trained politician but you know his view was that having gone back and looked at his his voting record over time that you know Scott's view was that he was perhaps a little bit lefter than centre than he had been portrayed as being so uh, uh, and again reading between the lines from what Scott said you know he said he, he he seemed happy with him and you know one of the one of the I guess the truisms that Scott called out was that well what other option have we got now as the Labour membership but to get behind him and back him 100% so you know it's uh, well, it, 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 yeah it's I, you know I guess um Considering how things have gone recently, and I guess this is, you know, this is um, this is Cow's house, so he'll he'll speak with more more authority about it. But um, it, it is a resounding result for Keir, so it, it's a it's a Keir result. No. Oh God! No. Have you done the in the Keir? <laughs> yeah, he's in he's in the Keir. Oh no. God! Um, and um, and Keir has, has um, announced some of his um, some of his shadow front bench. 
Um, yeah, a very interesting set of appointments. Um, obviously, uh, and again, it, it's not just necessarily who, who's in, but who's not in yet. So, you know, there was a, um, and, and to be fair, the, there's some stuff on the, I saw, I read a few of the sort of headlines of the, you know, they said, oh, the Corbyn old guard is out. But there's an element of, a number of those people had already said, do you know what, when Jeremy steps down, we're stepping down as well. So, you know, I saw things like Abbott and McDonald out. Well, they've not been thrown out. They they said, thanks, we've done our shift. We're going home now. Um, so, yeah, have you got the list in front of you there, Simon? The li- yes, I have. So we um, so um, Angela Rayner was, has been appointed as party chair, uh, which is quite a, a standard thing, uh, to be honest with you. Yep. Um, um, Annalise Dodds is shadow chancellor. Um, so John McDonald had, had said that he'd um, he was going to be stepping down anyway when, yep. um, when Corbyn left. Uh, Nick, no, I, I I have to say that's a name I don't know. Um, I've heard of, but can't really speak to um, speak yep, anything well. at all about her. To be honest with you, um, so I'll save that for Cal. Yeah, we'll we'll as, as we say we'll we'll let him speak with authority. Um, because we can't. Um, so, hang on, sorry. I've got more windows open here than... Um, um, then, well, then someone with lots of windows open. But I don't know where my... Your carefully where my, crafted where my view of are. the chat window is gone. Um, so, um, so if you're trying to say something to me in the chat window, sorry, I can't see you just now, but I shall try to figure that out in a second. Um... Yeah, so uh, Nick Thomas Simmons is Home Secretary. Um, uh, Rachel Reeves as Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which is now, kind of, is a what? What's weird. that? Do we know what that is? <laughs> That's just one of those things where um, where they have an obscure title, but basically, is that not just effectively the Deputy PM, so the Acting Assistant Deputy Understudy? No, I to the internet. Yeah, yeah, we might have to, but yeah, it's it's just that all the others seem to be the the big hitting jobs, and obviously Lisa Nandy been given foreign secretary, which is is one of the one of the top table jobs. So I'm not sure what the obscure shadow duchy well, past the duchy uh, on the left hand side. Well, Michael, Michael, Michael government, Michael, Michael government, Michael Gove, <laughs> Michael government. Um, performs that role in the government. Does he? Yes. Um, it's oh. a ministerial office in the government um, that includes, as part of its duties, the administration of um, the estates and rents of the Duchy of Lancaster. Again, we yes, let's try speaking English. Um, it's answerable to the Parliament of the governments of the... Oh, Holy hamsters. Um, yes, it seems to be mildly important to some degree. I mean, at the end of the day, they've given it to Gove, so it can't be that important. Um, How dare you. Govey, Govey, Gove, Gove. Okay. Oh, I'm waiting for Dead Ringers to come back because their Michael Gove is something quite special. I, I thought we were just... Um, I thought we were just waiting for um, Spitting Image to come back, but, you know, satirists up and down the country have been out of work for the last four years because they can't compete with what's actually yeah. happening in government. Yeah, um, yeah it's, so, like, it's like April Fool's this year. It's like nobody bothered, did yeah. they? It was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, April on. Fool's was rescheduled from January 1st until, um, well, we don't know yet. Um, so, yeah, we have, a, we have a whole eight people watching on the, on the stream, which is... That, um, is, a, that is a record... That's a record audience. How are we doing for time? Because I thought Cal was going to be in by now. We're, we left him We're at 6.36. I mean, we told him 6.40, didn't we? Uh, we did, didn't we? That's poor planning on our part. So, so. what are the other things that we were going to we were going to cover? We were going to ask people what, um, what they think um, politicians should be doing. That. So what would we want our politicians to be doing at this point? It's, uh, yep. It is unprecedented by its unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. Um, but it is... We live in strange times, so what what do we want our opposition and our governing um, politicians to be doing be doing at this point? That's a that's an interesting kind of point because there's a debate to be had there. 
Um, we also wanted people to let us know some good news stories about um, how their how their life is um, as a result of um, the the um, the guidelines, or the lockdown, as we um, as we've got used to calling it. Although to be fair, it seems to have still enough freedoms that people are managing to um, misunderstand them. Um, and there was a f- oh, why can't I remember the fourth thing? What, uh, what do we want life to be like afterwards? Yes, that's yes. why I can't, I can't think of it because I can't actually get that far ahead at the moment. So, no, what, no. what sort of world do we want post COVID? Um, well, so and that, that one's that one's going to be fascinating when we get there because, um, well, we you know, so. uh, well, there's a well, no, I don't mean like we're all going to die. I mean that when we get to that topic, because there are lots of aspirational statements being made today about you know what. But what can we learn from this? What can we make sure we never go back to? And um, yeah, it's definitely going to be one for us to to kick about in a lively fashion. Yes. Um, so Scott in the chat, Scott Peter Harris, friend of the pod, is asking us in the in the chat room, do we know who the Duchy of Lancaster is? Well, um, I might have a bit of a time lag issue there, but yes. So in the government, it is it is Michael Gove, um, and in the shadow the shadow cabinet yep. it is rachel reeves um what we haven't been able to figure out is what the hell they do um there's loads of stuff on wikipedia that i didn't really want to just kind of stumble through on air i thought that would look even more unprofessional than me trying to you know make it up um yeah well, I, what i can't work out is why it's it's been announced so soon it's that kind of well obviously Gove's considered to be he, he seems to be swanning about a bit at the moment and I wonder whether it's one of those obscure things that it, it falls to that role to sort of support during a um during some kind of crisis because you know I would have expected that shadow health probably would have been announced before the the the, the Duchy of Lancaster person Sorry, I stepped away from in front of the camera because I realised that the sun was streaming in through the window and blinding the blinding the webcam, um, which fortunately for the people watching meant that they couldn't see me. Um, uh, but now I've fixed that. How are you holding up then, Simon, with um, the uh, with the uh, with the COVID look? Um, with the COVID look, what do you mean? Yeah, well, it, obviously a trip to the barbers is right out at the moment, so. I have, I have. Yesterday, I deployed the new clippers, so I'm, I'm back to my neat and shiny grade naught all the way across. So, um, yeah, I'm, you are. I think, I think I'm looking particularly dapper and appealing at the moment. Whereas, you might be looking a bit banged up, I reckon, by this stage. Well, that's that's rude. Um, so, um, to be fair, mine does need a trim because the the, t- the top of my head. Um, you know, people said to me many years ago that I should let my hair down, and I did, and it, you know, just fell out. Never came back. Um, so yeah, yeah, I let it down, and off it went. Um, so yes, um, so yeah, so those of you following the stream, um, that's yeah, mine. It, it, it there's annoying, annoyingly enough of it there to be stupid and look irrelevant, but I just there's no point pretending it's anything else. So I should just shave it off, like I not to be fair, like I normally do, but I've been. Um, way laid um well we lost we were up to nine we were up to whole nine people but we've we've lost we've lost someone we're, we're down to eight again no worries um, maybe it was me disappearing off the off the screen um cal has just messaged me to say he's having tech issues logging in um okay um i'll tell you what no while we got gonna, while we gonna... while we're waiting waiting for cal let me give you a good news story from this week then good so, news story. Go on, then. um yeah, a little bit in, in the world of work. So I, about 18, 19 months ago, I, I joined the Guide Dogs for the Blind Association as senior program manager because they had a brave new strategy. And whilst I've loved working there, um, like so many organisations, they are not particularly quick or agile. And I go back to two weeks ago last Monday where some of the directors got together and decided that very rightly that you know people within the sight loss sector a lot of social isolation um high levels of unemployment um and really we needed 
to put some more support in in place. So the decision was taken that we were going to launch a an action line um, so that we could, you know, an information line that people could call in, support, you know, get support, get information. We could put people in touch with local support networks or just help solve their problems on on the phone now usually something like that in our organization i think we had planned for it to take nine months it'd probably take 12 um i volunteered i think at 12 uh, tuesday lunchtime to say yeah go on i'm happy to lead this um and it was incredible uh it took us nine days system launched thursday morning and um yeah we've now got a team of trained skilled call handlers there you know that can help from anything about ac from accessing shopping to how do i keep my dog interested and fit and healthy in these times and you know whatever people can think of we've got access now to a group of you know trained experts from within the business that should be able to uh, to answer any questions that come our way so phenomenal and you know it, one of those things and look, on a much bigger scale you know they opened the nightingale hospital yesterday and all right it only took them nine days but they probably have more people than me i reckon I, I I should imagine they definitely had more people than you. That I should imagine they also definitely chucked a lot more a lot more money at it. Um, oh, we we haven't spent a penny. Well, there That's we go. All, yeah, no, this has all been done. Uh, it's all been done internally, but with one of our um, business partners, who are uh, you know we they provide some of our um, customer relationship management software. Um, we reached out to them for some changes and they did that all free and gratis through their volunteering program and turned that around in two days. Aha, we have someone dialing in. I'm hoping that that is, that is Cal. Hello, is that Cal? Is that Cal? You, unmute him. Oh, that, yeah, we can't answer him. this. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Cal, is that you? Good evening, gentlemen. It is uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Corkery, how are you, sir? Ladies and gentlemen, Cal Corkery is in the building. Not too bad. How are you guys doing, apart from my tech? Marvellous. Yeah, we're having a bit of technical issues. Yes, this we're, week, living so. the, uh, we're living the social isolation dream. Hello? Hello. I, I think we've lost Simon's audio. No, so, I'm still, I'm still here. Cal, the floor is yours. Yeah, your audio is breaking up a bit, mate. It's the, it is the great joy of video conferencing that we have at the moment. So, Cal, the floor, floor, the floor is yours, sir. Keir Starmer, new leader. What's your first thoughts? Yeah, the new leader. I guess my first thoughts uh, was quite a comprehensive win. Um, I, I think I and lots of other people had been expecting him to be successful for quite a while, um, but. Obviously, it was more comprehensive than perhaps some of us thought and gives him quite a significant mandate to go on and lead the party. Yeah, I I, I was surprised the margin was as big. I, I, you know, having seen the the return of Mr. Corbyn the last couple of times and with Rebecca Long-Bailey clearly being the continuity candidate for, for the, you know, for Corbyn's approach and also... You know that that opportunity for her to become the first woman leader of the Labour Party, um, I I thought she would have run him closer. Yeah, and I think that was the expectation of a lot of people. I mean, from quite early on, I suspected this may well be the outcome, um, including quite a significant margin, because a lot of people um, who would probably um, kind of assign themselves as being on the left including on the left of the party and were very much Corbyn supporters previously um, were now kind of signed up to support Kia um, and were quite kind of enthusiastic about that. So I saw uh, signs that that was going to be the case and quite early on in the context, to be honest. So what do you think changed that narrative then? Well, I think... Uh... Ah. Have I lost you or have you lost me? Can you hear me? Can anybody hear me? Yeah, you've just come in over the top of cows, so you had lost us. Right. Sorry, guys. No worries. No worries. 
Yeah, so I think I think the kind of the general election result is something that uh, um, has brought about the leadership contest result in the way it has. I think it was a massive uh, blow for anyone that's been involved or kind of even supports the Labour Party to see the Tories' returns with such significant majority. Um, so I definitely think the outcome of the leadership is a direct response to that. Um, people obviously have deemed Kia in quite significant numbers to be someone that they think could win a general election. Um, and that's obviously the task that he's got now and over the next couple of years to try and make that a reality. Yeah, and, and again, it, it's interesting to reflect because f- for me, you know, as I've looked at it over the last couple of years, that there is, seems to have been a significant amount of Labour grassroots support, supporters who love Jeremy Corbyn. You know, and really think he's the genuine article and right man, right motives. And it would be fair to say that for those of us who who can't see that, we just couldn't see it. And I guess is there, the, the question is, do you believe Corbyn's brand of socialism could ever be electable? I don't think that the the brand of socialism on offer under Corbyn is actually that different from what someone like Keir Starmer offered um, in his leadership campaign. Now, whether he continues on that vein um, is another story. But if, in terms of policy, which is obviously the kind of key yeah. issues about what would you implement going into government, I don't think Keir Starmer has departed in any significant way from the policies that were offered, he um, continues on that um, is another generation. Do you think he'll... Obviously, we've seen the first appointments into the Shadow Cabinet. Um, Mm -hmm. To an outsider, it it looks a more centrist team with the top appointments that have come out and again, I have to hold my hands up. There are some names there, um, such as your new shadow chancellor that I'm not familiar with, but most of the mood music on on the major sort of news papers and, and BBC and Sky seem to be suggesting that that, that was a much more cent- centrist shadow cabinet. Um I don't think it's much of a shock. Obviously, we've got to wait to see what the rest of the positions are going to be. The kind of the major offers of state have been filled. Um, There's no major shocks in it for me. I was quite glad that Annalise Dodds was appointed um, Shadow Chancellor. I think she was the name in the mix that was, I guess, closest to the kind of Corbyn tradition and recent history. Um, She's more on the soft left herself. I think it's someone that would it herself can be very supportive of the kind of radical and transformative economic policies that were being put forward by the likes of John McDonnell in recent years. Surprised not to see RBL there? I, I would imagine. I, I'm not surprised that she hasn't been in one of the top offices of state. I would have liked to have seen her there. I think I would have liked to have seen her perhaps um, in Shadow Chancellor. I think that would have been a real statement of intent um, from Keir Starmer to appoint both Nandy and Rebecca Long-Bailey um, to the, one of those four offices of state in terms of bringing people in. That obviously hasn't happened. Um, uh, there's some speculation about whether she may um, continue in her existing kind of business brief or alternatively environment so she can kind of draw down on things like the Green New Deal, which has been a real strength and passion of hers. I would like to see that happen. Um, obviously, we'll probably find out tomorrow over the next couple of days, wherever it is. I think it's important in terms of bringing the party together and kind of uniting the movement that people like Rebecca Long-Bailey are included um, alongside other names so that people don't feel that their particular uh, faction or kind of part of the party is being excluded So, you know, are you hearing? Sorry, I've been sorting out some technical issues. I've been trying to sort out. I apologise, Cal, about the issue that I hadn't set up the account right, so that 
Apologies, listeners. Beast. I think Simon is having an absolute nightmare at his end. <laughs> you'd have thought we'd all be experts in Zoom by now, wouldn't you? Two weeks well, into lockdown. Well, you'd think. I'd, I'd also thought that a Sunday evening would have been a time where lots of other people wouldn't be doing loads of Zoom meetings, but maybe we were wrong. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry, Cal, about the issue about your number being displayed. That uh, That's meant to have been turned off my end, but that's something I've missed in the settings again. Okay, no problem. Um, but um, yeah, sorry. So um, I'd heard what you were saying. You, you so hope you was you're hopeful. You're still hopeful that um, Rebecca Long Bailey can have something to contribute in the in the shadow cabinet. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think she has got a lot to contribute. Um, she was my choice for leader, um, and obviously I made that judgment that I thought she was the best person to continue to lead our party. Um, but yeah, I think she's definitely got something to contribute, particularly, like I said, around Green New Deal um, and those kind of transformative green and economic policies that it seems to me are only going to become more and more relevant as time goes on. Um, and particularly off the back of this crisis, there's obviously going to be quite significant changes to the structure of the economy. And I'd hope to see things like the Green New Deal really at the forefront of that, with Labour pushing the alternative of how we can restructure the economy out of the back of the crisis in a way that is more green and socially just. Yeah, there's, there's certainly, I mean, that's an interesting point. It's one of the other questions that we, we wanted to look at today was that what what sort of country do we want to be when we get out of this crisis? Because it, it, you know, it, it will at some point um, end um, and all of the change, the massive change that we've had um, as a part of the crisis is is also an opportunity to, to turn that into something good? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the way we've got to look at it. I mean, these are unprecedented times. If you look back for anything perhaps comparable in terms of kind of social and economic juncture, probably the most recent uh, examples draw on is the Second World War in terms of massive kind of national and international upheaval um, uncertainty about what will come out the back of that. Obviously, out the back of the Second World War, it was the election of a, a Labour government because people realised that they'd suffered and paid a massive price and they wanted a fairer society to come of that. Yeah, it was an interesting thing that... Um, I don't know whether Ian's just given me time to speak or whether we've lost him now, now that we've got me... Um, that um, that actually on the on you know the end of the Second World War the country was was literally bankrupt um, you know with you know thousands of thousands of people had had lost their homes and thousands of people um, had died um, and out of out of, out of that um, you know out, from the ashes you know that was a time when actually the, you know the country created the NHS so um, I don't know maybe that maybe there's a, a thing to learn there it, it's, it's Perhaps a bit easy, isn't it, for politicians to talk about, you know, the Dunkirk spirit or the, you know, to treat it as a, you know, as a literal war. Um, but um, to, um, it, it, it means that there are opportunities to to do something positive on, on the end of it. Yeah. And it also shows the, the role that the state can play in the economy if it chooses to. So during the Second World War, the state was able to bring about full employment um, in the times of national crisis, ensured that everyone had a job. Um, and similarly, this time, the government has been able to do things which previously we were told were completely impossible. For example, house all rough sleepers. Um, so for the first time, even in, well, across the um, country, but in Portsmouth as well, for the first time in a long time, all rough sleepers have kind of got a blanket offer um, of self-contained accommodation to get them off the street. And this is something that was thought impossible um, only a few months ago. We've shown that it can be done. And for me, this is the kind of question that's going to come really pertinent out of the back of the crisis. Is if you can do it in a time of national emergency, why can't you do it all of the time? Um, yeah, My I mean, back. Oh, yeah. So I don't know what... The, it didn't seem to be responding to allow me to allow you to unmute. You kind of somehow lost the... Nope, I'm back. Okay. So, gents, lovely conversation there, but I've got to bring a bit of reality to the party here, which is that the 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 government is currently spending at 
ridiculous, unsustainable, bank-breaking levels. And, and this is where I struggle a little bit because, you know, the, the oh, well, look, these policies, okay, we found the money tree. We've The fact is we're just running up the world's biggest credit card bill that in some months time is going to land with a thump on the mat, on the mat. I can't, I, I, you know, I don't understand how you can possibly think that with that debt to clear, that there is going to be anything like this level of spending on an ongoing basis. I, I can't see how you would think that would happen. I'd, I'd love to understand that. I think they're going to have to be for at least a significant period in order to get the economy back on its feet um, to kind of reduce the level of state intervention in the economy anytime soon. It's going to be completely self-defeating. You're going to completely destroy the potential to support businesses to rebuild and kind of um, re-implement that tax base that's going to give long-term certainty to government finances. But remember that governments can run long-term deficits and the governments do run long-term deficits and debt and they're able to um, because their budgets work in a completely different way to say a household where a household does have to balance its debts um, over the kind of short and medium term whereas governments can sustain those long-term debts well and they can and and you know we, we've spent we spent the last 11 years working back towards uh, having a having a, a budget that works and we finally got there in 2019 and the wheels come off the bus again in 2020 um and did the debt you know, no no of course it didn't of course it didn't and but there's an element of we we got we got back to a position where the you know the income and the outgoing started to rebalance so i i the, the piece i don't understand is that do you accept that when the final reckoning is done of this, we are going to have a debt on an on a, on an in, a scale that could couldn't be imagined before? Quite possibly, yeah. But I mean, there were already massive levels of debt within the economy. Yep. Um, not just state debt; private sector debt was at historic levels, um, record levels. And that was something that wasn't being addressed. We were just continuing to live on a kind of debt-fueled model. So maybe this is something that will bring that to a head. Um, and coming back to the point earlier around kind of quite major economic change, I think we're going to have to look really carefully about the way in which all aspects of the economy are structured and think about how things could be done differently. And this is where this is, and I've had this discussion many times online, the only different model economies that I see working are the Scandinavian model based on having a significant sovereign wealth fund to allow them to run in a, in a, a high tax, high spend way. But that level of personal wealth is set at such a high level that, that everybody can quite comfortably tolerates that. But we don't have sovereign wealth. When this is all over, we're going to have massive sovereign debt. So, I, 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 I cannot. And again, look, this is this isn't me being the miserable shrew-faced Tory, although it is. It's that people talk of a different economic model, but I, I've looked really hard, and, and I've not seen one anywhere in the world that isn't built around sovereign wealth that works. So I, this is why I, I, I really start to struggle with this different model ideal. I'm not sure that all the Scandinavian countries do have sovereign wealth funds. I know Norway has quite a significant one, but I think that a lot of the others are just um, predicated on more of a high tax, high spend model. And actually, if, if you look at a lot of other European countries, particularly the Northern European countries, they already had going into this crisis quite significantly larger public sectors um, and it was more common to see kind of the government playing more of a role in the economy and in people's lives. So what do you see as this, this, this future model? 
Well, I think it's got to be something that has, there is much more of a, a, a safety net for people to fall back on. I think one of the major things that is going to come out of this crisis is a realisation, a much more widespread realisation about the precarity that a lot of people were living in in this society. So we had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who were self-employed, for example, recently, were kind of bemoaning the fact that they were going to be living on £94 a week because that is a very low figure. Yeah. But what I'm not sure a lot of those people realise is that the sick and the disabled in this uh, country have been living on a lot less for a, for a long time. And I think once people have kind of realised and looked at the impact those kind of income levels are going to have on their lives, I would hope um, that they would never want to put anyone else in that position. Uh, it's, I, I'm going to pick you up there on the, the disabled living on less. Uh, you know, employment support allowance for the higher dependency group is that's 110 pounds a week and the personal independence payment at higher level is a, is at a similar level so I, I don't you know i think it's a sorry the basic rate of both employment and support allowance and job seekers allowance they, prior to the crisis around four pounds a week yeah they, they would so the the basic rate was realigned um a couple of you know a uh, 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 six seven months ago but the higher rate is still higher than it, that level so you know there is an element of uh, sorry if you qualify for yes it. yes indeed yeah yeah absolutely and i think there was a you know that the, there was a lot of debate within the disabled community about the aligning of esa and job seekers allowance um you know for me uh, and again we can we'll, we'll go down a rabbit hole with are you fit to work you know there's an element of if you're fit to work i i, I could never understand why you know where you would receive additional payments for personal independent payment while you'd get extra ESA as well. But I think that the difficulty with the, the, you know, that all of us want a better and fairer society. The piece where we digress is how are we going to pay for it? And that's where I think the challenge of we've now got a debt, we've got a service. The ex I think we both accept that the economy will be damaged significantly by this. So I guess it is your belief that to, to keep this going, we're just going to have to keep borrowing and spending at extraordinarily high levels. I think that's the economic reality, but I also think it's the new political reality. Like I said, what once people have seen that it's possible to house everyone, to give everyone decent levels of income backed up by state guarantee if necessary, to ensure that no one falls through the crack and has to live a life of kind of poverty and suffering. Once people have seen that in front of their very eyes, I think it's going to be politically impossible for a government to suggest going back to anything different. So the com so the country's going to bankrupt itself. Well, no, I think we're going to design a new economy. I would hope that it is fairer and more sustainable, economically sustainable, and environmentally sustainable. But I, and this is where I'm confused. So, so you're only there's only two ways for governments. There are three ways for governments to come by money, aren't there? They can borrow it. They can tax it, they can print it. Now, the, the yeah. latter didn't go terribly well in Zimbabwe or Venezuela. So the, the, the let's just print more pounds, you know, we can all be going around with 30 million pound notes in our wallet and that will buy us a costa. So, uh, you know, let, let's leave that one to one side. So your only, your only two well, options... I don't, I don't leave it to one side because the UK government has created a lot of money over them, um, kind of recent decades um but a lot of that money has been pumped into financial services that inflate asset prices when it could have instead been put into people's bank accounts so the government's shown a willingness to print money it's just where it's chosen to put that money is the issue so i mean other other countries when um in the 2008 financial crisis um chose to 
issue that money actually directly to um, to people's bank accounts, didn't they? They actually, I mean, I guess if our if our society and our economy is primarily a consumer-led society, then surely the thing you want to do is maintain the consumer ability to spend. So there's a there's an argument to be made there, isn't there? Of actually, rather than give the money to the banks that that then you know then pull up the drawbridges of who they're actually lending to um, and still, to be honest, to a large part, operate in this in a way similar to they were doing before 2008. If you'd actually given that given that money to um, to every citizen, then they'd have used that to pay down their credit card debt or to um, help them actually um, get a deposit for a house or to, you know, to the, the, the people people earning less would be more le- more likely to spend that money back into the economy. But the two examples you've just given there, Simon, Mm. you've said they would use it to service existing debt. Mm -hmm. Well, that may have gone via a person's bank account, but that will go that will end up in a financial institution or they'll use it to save for the deposit for a house. Yeah. Which will then stimulate a growth in house prices. But but if if we're saying that our our society and our economy is consumer led, because we're not really making things anymore, if actually it's a consumptive society, then giving the the end consumers the ability to use money to do something that they will that they really really need to do with it, whether that's actually they go out and buy something they what they they couldn't previously have afforded, whether it means that they service debt that actually means that effectively they're increasing their disposable income, whether that means um, that they're using that in order to be able to buy a house, aren't those all good things that we want all everybody to be able to contribute to the economy to be able to do, rather than well, hiding well, it, it in banks? No. Well, so, and this is where, so I guess this is a fundamental question, which is that being a consumer-led economy, so if we look at, you know, if we look at that, and again, I've argued this for, for, for some time, there has never been a greater opportunity for you to get into debt. So if you look at the, and if we take post-war as an example, and I think you know it, it is something to learn from. What what could you spend your money on? Food was rationed and limited, as was clothing. Disposable, you know, we did not live in the disposable society we do now. No, but lots of people spent that spent um, spent were able to buy houses. They became household house owners. Uh, not post-war, they didn't. Well, there was we a built, we built lots of council houses, but, and look, all three of us will hug each other and agree that we should be doing more of that. I'm, I don't think we'll have a fight over that one. But I guess my question is that we are we have a consumerist society which encourages fripperous and wasteful spending. Is that what is that what? So we want to give. So it is the model that we give more money to people so that they can spend fripperously on disposable fashion, coffee, you know, coffee in an unrecyclable cup, fast food, takeaway. Is is that the society that we want to create after this by just giving people more money to spend on that? To be fair, I don't think that's the examples that Cal or I were giving. No, no, but I'll, let you, it's a, I'll let you come back in, Cal. Sorry, go on. I think the first thing that the government needs to do out the back of its classes is ensure that nobody is ever in a position where they're going about the essentials um, of, of life. And too many people in our society have been going out without the, without the essentials um, in recent years. I always, and I will repeatedly keep bringing it back to housing. Um, yep. For me decent and secure shelter is an absolute human and social right but in recent years in this country and other parts of the world we've been allowing quite significant numbers of people to go without that right being realised um, so I would hope that that's one of the things at least one of the positives that can come out there is that we ensure that everyone has the housing in their needs and the kind of material resources in their life to have even a kind of a decent basic standard of living before we go on to think about the the more luxuries um Ian seems to be concerned with. And and I think how that that for me is and, and look, you know, there's been, there was talk of do we go to a universal basic income? 
and mm-hmm. I've I've seen some studies on that. And I'll be honest with you, it makes every fibre in my being scream, "No, it's a Skyvers charter." But if I leave that aside, then I kind of get it conceptually, because if we could if we could set that level where we didn't have to make people claim for benefits and claim for universal credit and uh, that would save a massive wasted administration and you know human dignity would be restored there's a lot lot of good arguments for it but then my problem comes as to what where do we set that b level at what what is a fair basic income are you asking us to come up with a number? No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing the concept out I, because I think that's where, because, you know, Carl's made some really good points there about decent and fair and, you know, what people should expect. Um, none of us would say we want to see people live in poverty or squalor or misery. We're all aligned on that. But the question is, at what level do you set the safety net? And how do you pay for it? I think the level which it needs to be set is a, is a level that affords people the ability to provide themselves and their families with the, the essentials um, in life. And I mean, I've got figures to hand, but there's quite a lot of research that's been done around this, but like Joseph Roundview Foundation, the Child Poverty Action Group, about the level of kind of social security provision um, that will be necessary in order to lift everyone um, out of poverty and give them the resources they need to live kind of fulfilling lives. And that's, but that's where I have a real problem, Cal, because all both of those organisations, and I've read a lot of what they've had to say, their definition of poverty is based around the median income. So there is a situation where if the median income rose to be £100,000 a year, anybody earning less than £70,000 a year would be considered poor. Their their approach to relative poverty means there will always be a percentage of people who are considered to be relatively poor. Yeah, well, let's take that point and we can have a discussion around defining poverty. Well, well, perhaps another day. But I think, I, I guess where, you know, and the reason why I think we're kicking this about is because, you know, if we look at the few, you know, what, what we come out of the other side of this and look you know none nobody enjoyed austerity even the cartoons that were portrayed about the tories you know uh, reveling in it and delighting in it nobody liked it and Uh no one nobody fancies austerity super plus that could be one of the outcomes coming out of the other side of this So, yeah. oh, well, I, I think it would be one of the options that parts of the Tory party um, would want to pursue um, because there's a lot of typical Conservatives that are very concerned about the deficit and getting the national debt down. Um, but to come back to the point I made earlier, I, I, I think, and I really do generally believe this, is that that will no longer be um, a political reality, an option for any mainstream party to pursue once we've come out of the back of this crisis, I think there's going to be a massive change in public sentiment towards the role that the government and state should play in the economy and in society more widely. Simon? Um, it, it, it's an interesting... Yeah, sorry, with the connection thing, I'm, I'm trying desperately not to cut across Cal because, you know, it, we've invited him on so we can hear from him. Um, I... I, I honestly, I think there's a long-term conversation because of how our economy and how technology is going about about making universal base, basic income work. Because as time goes on, um, I think there will be less and less employment as more and more things are taken over by te- more and more jo- um, jobs are taken over by technology. So, so there's kind of that question, and that's a massive, massive question. Kind of put that aside um, from a point of view of the role of the the role of the state i guess the fundamental point of your view ian is that um the government shouldn't spend money it doesn't have 
on a day-to-day basis. I think I think we're all actually would agree that borrowing to invest is a sensible thing, especially where it improves uh, improves productivity and, and raises um, raises um, outcomes for for the people living in the country. So so in in that respect, there's two different ways to end up with more money left at the end of the month, and I know economists will be screaming at us for trying to compare a household income to a national income because you can't really compare the two but nonetheless the you can either spend less or you can earn more um and the you can do a certain amount of spending less you can cut a certain amount um but there comes a point where you have to actually spend a bit more in order to in order to earn a bit more in order to increase the tax take and in order to allow the the workforce to be more productive um, and allow the workforce to actually um, attain those attain those better jobs that actually mean that they get a, a better standard of living. So, personally, I, th- I think I think there's a I don't I don't think the market solves its issues on its own anyway. Um, which is which is why I would say that I, I I think I'm kind of mirroring what Cal is saying. There is that there's a conversation to be had about how much intervention do people want from the state how much will they expect and and to kind of mirror back to what we were talking about you know at the end you know in the you know the late late 1940s and the 1950s people were expecting different things from the state because of what they'd been through obviously what we're going yeah. through isn't anything like that it, it isn't comparable but from a point of view of there's been a massive nationwide systemic change that is going to cause people to kind of rethink for me I think the fundamental thing that we probably would agree is going to come out of the, is definitely going to come out of this really, really hopefully is that we're going to stop thinking that it's a logical thing to do to spend an hour and a half in a car or on a train oh. going to a 45 minute long meeting to come back home again. And instead actually spending that time either being more productive or God forbid, spending more time with your children or being more healthy Um would actually be better for all of us, would actually make us happier. And if that comes out of that, um, then do you know beautiful, what? Beautiful segue. Shall we, Let, shall we just, oh, sorry. <laughs> so uh, one of the upsides of this, Cal, and I know this is a subject very close to your heart, is that, you know, next to your constituency of Charles Dickens, that long snaking queue of cars pumping out CO2 next to your constituents has diminished greatly and so i guess the question is we've all managed to learn to work from home or lots of people learn to work from home how how do we you know how do we see that 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 going forward do you think we'll just go back to where we were before i think there's going to be quite um major changes in the way in which we work and people's experience as well. Um, like Simon was saying, the idea of spending significant amounts of time um, commuting to places when a lot of that can perhaps be done remotely, I think is going to be one of the outcomes of this. It's going to be a lot more home working. And I would hope, yeah, that if we've shown that actually uh, things like air quality can be improved significantly, and that there's been reports in Portsmouth um, that in particular places where congestion is usually bad, the air quality there has unsurprisingly improved significantly, then it seems to me the the solution to the air quality problems that we're having and to the climate crisis more generally is to get people out of their cars. If homeworking is one way of doing that, that's definitely something that needs to be explored um, alongside the kind of wider structural changes around investment in public transport and greener forms of getting around. Yeah, it's an interesting one because, uh, and again, I, I think I've shared, I, I've been, I moved to working from home back in November 2018. And so I, you know, this, the, the, the novelty for me is not the working from home, but it's the fact that I'm now, I'm now sharing my home office space, which is the dining room. It's not that grand uh, with my 19 year old son, who is um, doing his tele telephone sales job from from home and uh, my wife works at a college and my uh, youngest son is at college so they, they've both been turfed out so I've now got a, ho- a home full of people whilst I work from home but I think the, the interesting thing going forward will be how many how much it becomes the normality 
because it is actually, you know, I'll be quite candid. I hated it. And I would look for any opportunity to travel halfway across the country to attend an all day meeting because I found the social isolation of everybody else leaving the house at eight o'clock in the morning and me and my dog sat here till quarter to six. You know, he's a lovely fella, but he's, his conversation skills are crap. So I do wonder whether with the working from home, there has to be something else has to happen as well to, to make, yeah. you know, to make a more cohesive society. And I think things like co-working space is perhaps going to be key to that. Um, so I know that's a, a significant part of the proposals for the old John Lewis building, um, having co-worker space where people that are freelancers working from home or the rest of it can pay kind of quite a small kind of daily or monthly figure in order to go and be around other people mm. who are perhaps working. But it's changing that kind of the, the nature um, of employment and moving it away from uh, employment sites where everyone is based on the same task or for the same company um, and looking at alternatives that can be more environmentally sustainable because you could perhaps have co-working spaces in each neighbourhood that are easily accessible um, by green methods of transport or even on foot that stops the necessity for people then have to spend hours a day to commute to their place of work. No, I think that's. Uh, I think those are some of the interesting concepts that need to be explored because, you know, I, and again, I, I think it's interesting. It's a mindset change. You know, my best friend for two years, you know, had to commute from Waterlooville to Whiteley to sit in his office surrounded by other people employed by the same company who had absolutely nothing to do with anything he did. He had nothing to do with anything they did. They just sat mm -hmm. in the same space and he drove home again. And, you know, eventually he had, he had a change of boss and had the conversation that said, why am I doing this? Why, why am I not just sat in my home office and not, you know, burning all this stuff going backwards and forwards? So maybe that'll be one of the positives to come out of this that we can all, we can all get behind. I mean, think of all that space that we have in our city landscapes that's given over to road and given over to office space if we and we're already discovering that you know we don't really need as many as much retail space um in the 21st century as we did in the 1980s um and maybe that gives us an opportunity to be more to think about what what do we really want our cities to to look like we can be bold about how we use those spaces to build communities and how we use those to encourage people to not spend their time gained by not sitting in a car or sitting in a train to be working more, but to spend those times, you know, going outside, you know, learning, you know, you know, exercising, spending time with their families, all of those things that, that do you know what, that, that don't kind of really turn up on a balance sheet, but are actually something really fundamental to the health and well-being. Uh, and really, really powerful for mental welfare. Mm. And I think for me, Simon, that's the opposite edge of the sword of working from home. So, and again, this won't be a surprise to any of my bosses. The only way that I got through it was the, because I, I'm not scheduled to start till nine o'clock, but I'm logged on by quarter past seven most days. And the only way that I managed to keep myself sane is that keeping the space between sort of 11 and half past one clear shutting the laptop, saddling my dog up, you know, and then going and spending an hour in the gym and maybe pick up lunch from a local cafe. You know, that, that was the only way I found to keep myself sane. So it, a different way of working, um, still got the job done, but not in that traditional, you know, French way of taking two hours off for lunch. Oh, with a mistress. Because that better not be the case. No, no, no. God, no. Can I say, I've married your sister. Exactly. Behave why, yourself, why man. Why do you think I'm saying it? <laughs> what do you think I'm saying? It better not be the case. Um, Bloody hell. So, um, <laughs> sorry, Cal. Um, yeah, so some really big opportunities and some really big questions. Yeah, I, I think we're going to look back on this um, later on in our lives and see it as a turning point um, for the way in which kind of society and the economy will run and hopefully it's going to be a turning point for the better and then we move towards a way of structuring our lives in a way that's kind of fairer 
um, more equal and also more sustainable. That sounds like a good point to end on, on that one. I think it does. Cal, thank you ever so much. It has been wonderful as always to have you on. Uh, whilst we're blue and yellow, we always we always welcome your red view of the world just to uh, to give us something else to think about. So you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Blue and yellow, till we die. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. Cal, I don't know if you wanted to sign off. I'm Cal Corkery, representing the red team. <laughs> <laughs> and you represented it very well. Thank you, mate. Um, yes, and mate. I'm Simon Sansbury. <laughs>